This is episode eight of the Immunology Podcast, Veterinary Virology with Dr. Robin Hall. Hey everyone, this is Dr. Jason Goldsmith and Dr. Brenda Rapp. Welcome back to the Immunology Podcast, where we have conversations with immunologists. The Immunology Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. Today we have Dr. Robin Hall from the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization on the podcast to have a fascinating conversation about bunnies. We talk about her research on innovative and applied solutions for improving rabbit biocontrol using rabbit calciviruses. We've also got our usual roundup of highlights and immunology news coming up, but first... We'd like to remind our listeners about Immunology in Infectious Disease News a free weekly newsletter brought to you by Stem Cell Science News, summarizing the latest research, news, jobs, and events in infectious diseases. Use Immunology of Infectious Disease News to stay current with the latest COVID-19, HIV, hepatitis, tuberculosis, influenza, and malaria research. Subscribe at www.immunologyofinfectiousdiseasenews.com. All right. Well, hey, Brenda. How have you been? Ready to talk about some science today? Indeed, indeed. You know, uh, I was I was hoping we'd be have a good Delta virus paper out, but we don't yet have a good Delta virus paper yet. Yet, so we'll just have to wait for the Delta it variant. It will come. It will come. I know. Someone, someone out there, please preprint, regular print. You know, we need we need to talk <laughs> about the Delta variant here. Come on, people. It's only been like no. A month. I don't want to talk about that anymore. <laughs> I want to pretend it doesn't exist. Some people did that for a while. Yeah, and that's where it brought us. Anyway, anyway. but you know, today I uh, will pretend that COVID doesn't exist. No COVID papers on my side. S- same here. This is this is amazing. We, we we've broken the cycle. I got leprosy. Oh, you we, do? I oh, do. My I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I get this terrible rash. No. So I'm going to talk to you today about a paper titled "The Cellular Architecture of the Antimicrobial Response Network in Human Leprosy Granulomas." First author is Fengying Ma. It's in Nature Immunology, and uh, it's a pretty exciting paper here in that it did a really cool subset of experiments and compared two types of leprosy. So there's disseminated lepromatous leprosy, so LLEP, and self-limiting tuberculoid leprosy. So tuberculoid leprosy is where you have good granuloma formation, which sterilizes or nearly sterilizes the infection, where disseminated is obviously when that doesn't happen and you have lesions everywhere and you're sick. Uh, so they were really trying to understand what was causing these changes and trying to understand like the cellular architecture and the network of cells that were responsible for this. And then as well, they dived into the antimicrobial response network that formed this. But what was really cool is they actually took granulomas. And, you know, they did the usual single cell RNA-seq, but they actually took granulomas. And in this crazy figure six they have, and crazy in a good way, they took tissue sections and then they mount a barcode onto another slide that is then that barcode has a geographic tag as well as a cell tag. So just like an RNA oligo barcode. And they smush that slide onto a specially prepped slide of tissue. So they can actually do single cell RNA seq of every region of a tissue section and then know where that those sequencing reads came from. So it's like spatially mapped single cell RNA-seq. And I've seen some other papers that do this in different ways. This is one of them. And so they actually were able to get a understanding within a granuloma of what cells are where 
and what they're producing uh, for the first time. I and mean, you could do this laser capture micro dissection, but this is obviously just a much more robust process. And so they were able to show a couple of pretty interesting things. They showed that IL-1 beta and interferon gamma were driving a lot of the response for sterilizing processes in a granuloma. And they identified that these LEN led to antimicrobial gene expression in these bulk TLEP lesions and when you had reverse reactions where some people with LLEP transitions towards TLEP. And so really that this concept is you have this IL-1 beta interferon gamma coordinated process that is spatially coordinated and that then causes antimicrobial peptide release and these granulomas. And obviously a granuloma is a spatially organized thing or entity, if you want to put it that way. And that spatial organization lends itself to these type of studies. And so they show that on the outside, there's the fibroblasts. The next layer in, they have the T cells, that's the mantle region. And in the center are the macrophages. And that the macrophages that you see in a granuloma are, are um, every basically many types. So M1 and transitional macrophages, but not the foamy cell macrophages that you see, like say associated with um, lipid-related diseases like atherosclerosis. They weren't there. They were not those macrophages, but those like foamy macrophages were with the L-LEP disseminated form. And so there you go. It was a, I mean, like it was a, you know, I was like, oh, this is going to be a single cell RNA-seq paper looking at a few things. And they slapped me in the face with this really cool spatial organization. It was very neat to see. Um, and they really did a deep vibe of like these cells in this spot produce these genes and those are related to these cells next to this. And that signaling leads to that because you assume that something spatially close can drive the other signaling. And then they go through this all network analysis and lead it back um, to, to IL-1 beta and interferon gamma as being the main drivers. Yeah, I think nowadays with this uh, spatial sequencing, you can really you can really get some information that is quite amazing, and it's, it's so cool to understand the architecture. Especially, I think in the case of this granuloma, that as you said, there's their architecture is kind of one of the main features of the structure, so to say. When people have, in the case of for people with leprosy. So these are the granulomas are the ones that, that we know as the, like, the typical leprosy signs. The granulomas are found on the skin or are these lung These are mostly on the skin. They use this to uh. study as an analogy to tuberculosis because it's the same. Mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a mycoplasma as well, a mycobacterium, yeah. really, not mycoplasma. Um, then you don't have the difficulty with access like you do with a lung lesion. Um, mm -hmm. But like, you know, the terrible lesions from leprosy are more disseminated, which then you try to granulomatize and you do to an extent or not versus, you know, a quiescence, you have a granuloma or two, and a small lesion on your, or two on your skin and you're holding it in check. But I think though, you know, I've seen this, the spatial organization and spatial sequencing is really cool. So I think anyone who's been doing this lately, I've seen a couple of these papers on Twitter, but like at us on Twitter, if you have a paper out that you put, with uh, spatial with spatial sequencing, just to like raise the awareness of this, because it's been pretty neat to see. I think there's three or four different methods that are kind of coming online all within the last few months, which means it's been taking like three or four years for the papers to come, you know make work their way through. But I'm like starting to see more and more papers with it. Are they using uh, is it nanostring technology that they're using? So some people are taking glass slides and placing oligos on glass slides. 
that are like spatially printed. And then they oh. slap that on another on the slide of tissue that has been like prepped in such a way to expose the DNA and they put those together. And then the, the oligos then ligate to the RNA of the, the poly A RNAs of the tissue. And then that creates, and then they then take the whole cell and they can then, you know, they take the whole plate and grind it. Or it's not plate slide and then grind it up. And so because the barcode on the, on that glass slide they're putting down, it has both a bark enough barcode variations for that point and each point you know with whatever spatial resolution they have has its own barcode as well and so then it can be reassembled using mm -hmm. a computer smarter than all mm -hmm. of us all right oh yeah it's crazy <laughs> it's really cool well i will continue with my uh with my paper uh my gift from for me to you and i'm going to change a little bit uh, now you mentioned rna i'm going to keep talking about rna but my paper is looking at the effect of modulating RNA splicing and how that affects the presentation of neoepitopes in, in tumor cells. So uh, this paper, uh, Pharmacologic Modulation of RNA Splicing Enhances Anti-Tumor Immunity, was published in Cell. And first authors uh, are Sidney Liu, Emma Deneff, and James Thomas. And it seems to be a collaboration uh, between uh, the labs of Omar Abdel Wahab from uh, Memorial Sloan Catering Cancer Center in New York and Robert Bradley from the French Hutch at, uh, in Seattle. And in this paper, they uh, take a close look into the effects of modulating splicing uh, in tumor cells. With They have a kind of a battery of different inhibitors that are targeting different um, um, elements of the spliceosome or different parts of the splicing uh, of the splicing mechanism, and they so they basically start their paper showing that when they have um, to a tumor tumor lines that are are exposed are, uh, to um, a uh, inhibitor of uh, called Indisulam, uh, which is an inhibitor of one of one of a protein part of the that is in, involved in splicing, are RMB39, and they see that at uh, treating the cells, the concentrations that do not uh, uh, affect the proliferation of the tumor in vitro, it does have a uh, effect on the growth after the cells are transferred into mice, um, so the, the the treated tumors grow slower. And this is an effect that is dependent on T cells because it doesn't work on RAC2 knockout mice, so they don't have T cells, or uh, or on um, tumors that are knocked out. They don't have; they're not expressing the beta 2 M um, protein, and therefore cannot cannot present antigen on class one. And so this really points out towards a recognition by T cells in these mice. And what I also see is that if they take Lysates from uh, tumors, tumor cells treated or not treated, and they load them on antigen presenting cells. This uh, antigen presenting cells with with treated tumors, uh, with lysates from treated tumors, are more immunogenic uh, against kind of naive naive mouse cells than than uh, their control counterparts. And so this really points pointed towards the idea that this. Um, these treated tumor cells were expressing antigens that were being you know, um, seen by T cells in the mice. 
And so they looked at the, so they, they thought this, they had something very promising in hands and they looked a bit closer into the effects of this um, inhibitors on tissue proliferation. And they saw that some, of course, at certain, at certain concentrations, many of these, most of these uh, if, had some clear effects on tissue proliferation, but they could have uh, concentrations that were well tolerated and did not affect tissue proliferation that but were still relevant for, for, for the, the, the modification of the, of the immunogenicity of the, t- of the tumors. And so uh, they, they, they also tested in vivo. So at this concentration that they found, and they also saw that it could also reduce tumor proliferation uh, in vivo. So it was uh, very promising. Uh, moreover, they, com- they combined it uh, with anti-PD-1 treatment. And they also uh, could uh, significantly significantly reduce the growth of, uh, uh, for example, B16 uh, melanoma lines or in, in mice or MS- MC38 tumors. Uh, very, very interesting, very interesting results they had, and they treated tons of mice. So um, they look when they look closer into the mechanism, they um, they they saw indeed that. Uh, there were modifications or the alterations in the transcriptomes of the of the tumor cell lines that were treated with these inhibitors, and they could uh, perform a high coverage RNA seq, and in which they could quantify gene expression and also the isoform expression and the consequences of the different splicing or the uh, the, the uh, suboptimal splicing events or affected splicing events by uh, the inhibitors. And they also had a, a pipeline in which they predicted peptides from this data. And they also, uh, um, by um, mass spectrometry, they identified peptides bound to the MHC1s uh, of these tumor cell lines uh, that were treated. And they identified those that were like uh, differentially presented. And they had in an experiment in which they immunized mice with 109 different peptides uh, to evaluate their immunogenicity in vivo. And they saw that several of them were in fact immunogenic. And um, and also they had, I think, an interesting pipeline, uh, maybe for those that are working with uh, antigen presentation and those things had a different pipeline in which they also selected exclusively through uh, in silico predictions and other, other candidate peptides. Uh, from this, the RNA-seq analysis and predictions by to MHC class one binding, and they also observed that uh, many of those were uh, 28% of these were actually immunogenic in, in vivo, which I think is a pretty good number uh, as a prediction. So the um, and again, so they 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 saw that these cells that were uh, the the that were derived from mice that had been immunized with this with this peptide could also then uh, react against the tumors that were uh, presenting, so they were treated with uh, with inhibitors or when presenting this and peptides. So there were specific T cells against this peptide, and and that's also the the case uh, where they, they saw in pr- principle kind of increased frequencies of the CD8 T cells that are capable of recognizing this the splicing derived peptides in the mice that re- uh, received. In this case, they did a lot of work with one of the inhibitors that I mentioned in Disulam. And uh, very interestingly, they also combined it with PD-1 treatment, and they saw a synergistic uh, effect of, of both. So 
So I think it was a really nice uh, kind of proof of concept of the potential of regulating the spliceosome of tumors for for um, kind of re revealing new potential targets. Uh, of course, there's always I, I think there's more work to do regarding how does that affect the, the the transcriptome of normal cells and those things. But I think that in general they show that these inhibitors are tolerated; they're not toxic, and they could potentially Maybe in tumor cells that are already a little bit um, dysregulated could be promising for for um, surfacing new antigens. Interesting. So splicing inhibition leads to the per basically generation and then presentation of more antigenic peptides by MHC that lead to tumoral immunity. Right. So they're not they're peptides that are usually not presented. So they're kind of neo antigens that are not expressed normally at all. And does this have any toxicity in these hundreds of mice that they did all this to? Because I'm wondering if you're starting to mess with RNA splicing, are you going to make neoantigens on regular tissue, everything right, that's that, uncle? Are you going to cause problems with biology question, function, yeah. with splicing inhibitors? So they, they, they see that... Uh, they don't see toxicity, so they do a very in-depth uh, evaluation of like tissues and pathology of the mice, and they don't show any toxicity uh, that would be expected if you have kind of an autoimmune response because your own tissues are starting to express this aberrant peptides, uh, and they're and they're really limited to certain concentrations of the inhibitors and no more. Um, so I think that they do, I mean, this, you're probably not, this is probably not enough information to inject the person with it, but I think that in general, they, they do a great effort into looking into potential toxicity or, uh, yeah, in the induction of autoimmunity, uh, upon this treatment. And they don't seem to find that. Interesting. Well, at least I'm, I'm happy they did that. A lot of people forget. So that's good. All right. Well. I know that you're going to talk about something related to this in a bit uh, because I can see the show notes, but I'm going to start and jump into follicles first and talk about follicular lymphoma and how it triggers a phenotypic and functional remodeling of the human lymphoid stromal cell landscape. Uh, that is the title of the paper. First author is Frederic Morsin. Um, it is in immunity and it actually comes out in August. So this is the uh, preprint posted here. So this this was an interesting paper. Uh, also, a lot of single cell RNA seq, a lot of spatial understanding and organization, but they did not use the spatial map single cell RNA seq. But what they did is they spent a good chunk of the paper defining the lymphoid stromal cells, so all the tissue populations in the stroma around lymph tissue in in humans by single cell RNA seq and then looked at what happened in the last couple of figures in the lymphoma environment. And so to keep it high level, because this paper has a lot of acronyms and I had to write them down and then read the paper twice and then track it all. Um, but for, for the audience to follow along here, what they really defined was that there are follicular dendritic sites, follicular reticular cells, and then follicular double negative cells. Um, and these double negative cells are characterized by CD49 being high and other markers being low. Um, 
So I think that is GP38 and CD31 negative CD49 high, but they call those double negatives. And so what they showed was that these cells existed in a certain basal state at baseline, but in the presence of lymphoma, um, the populations all kind of mushed together a little bit more is the easiest way to size, describe it in terms of RNA-seq. And especially the double negatives drifted away from being a distinct population. And these double negatives then got reprogrammed to produce a bunch of TNF and TGF beta and support tumor growth. So basically the lymphomas, and then they did some ex vivo studies and showed that if you just took lymphoma cells and put them next to regular old double negative cells, that they would then cause the double negative cells to switch their state of function. So it looks like, and that's what made this paper really cool, was that lymphoma, and so, you know, aberrant B cells, bidirectionally crosstalk with the immune cells to reprogram. So, so there'll be these, these, you know, these cancerous immune cells reprogram these lymphoid stromal cells in the tumor environment to make them more supportive. So once they've gone rogue, they actually then send out signals to the surrounding tissue to cause the tissue to support their further dysfunction and disease state. And it's through a TNF and TGF beta dependent pathways. Um, it reprogrammed the entire set to be more similar and more pro-tumor. So the distinct populations become less distinct because they all become more pro-tumor and thus more similar to each other. And so, you know, I actually think that, you know, if, if anyone's going to go read this paper as well, I would read figure one first, hop to figure six and seven, then read it all the way through and uh, see how they define these populations and go from there. Um, there's a lot of different subpopulations, but there's this, this core three that figure one really describes. And then they show this, this, this ability for these cancer cells that reprogram things in figure six and seven, which is the real money. And then they can kind of fill in the blanks after that. But it's very fascinating that they were able to define this. Um, and in human populations, this isn't just murine experiments. This is all in human tissue. Just murine experiments, some respect to all of those heroic mouse cancer cures. I, I, yeah. I you know, if, if I, I love mouse experiments. And it's also very true that if mice had cancer, we, we have it cured by now. <laughs> like we, we can cure but, mouse cancer better than anything else that we can do in the world. When you think about normal B cells or no, um, germinal center B cells, they probably are making uh, the similar signaling molecules or uh, side uh, chemokines in order to you no know, prepare their 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 niche, right? How does this compare? How does the the, the sorry the effects of the follicular lymphoma cells? compared to what a normal um, 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 grow a germinal center B cell would do. Well, so that's what they showed. They showed that that at baseline, you know, you have these three different states of follicular cells and more, but these three popular ones. And then they're fine and then don't secrete a whole bunch of TNF, for instance. They're pretty mm. quiescent. They, so they don't secrete a bunch of TNF or TGF. They're not pro-tumor. But then once the you throw in the cancer cells, they flip. So the regular cells, uh, you know, they hang out dendritic cells, and there's germinal center B cells hanging out, and a few T cells on the outside, and everyone's hunky dory, and they support a normal environment. It's only these abnormal 
follicular lymphoma B cells that then cause the shift over. So everything's compared to the steady state, like, you know, air quote, normal follicular uh, germinal, you know, normal follicles with normal germinal center B cells. So at baseline, that is what they're seeing. And they're seeing the state switch with the cancer. They don't really go into depth about how the regular B cell supports that environment um, because that's the baseline environment, but they see that there's a phase shift. Yeah, so this is basically how the lymphoma is completely restructuring the, the lymph, uh, lymphoid tissue. So a lymph, no, they're looking at tonsil tissue? Tonsil, yep, tonsil, which you know, hmm. people just like to throw away. So it's a good source. Yeah. All these, all these cancer cells, always, always making messes here and there. When will they learn? Okay, so for the last, the last topic of the day, uh, I'm going to talk about my favorite T-cell subset, I think. You might know which one it is, of course. Regulatory T-cells, the pragmatic cells of the T-cell repertoire, the peacemakers, uh, the inflammation controllers. So I, uh, this, I will talk about this paper from, was published in, uh, Nature Immunology. First author, Simon Eskweiler, and from the lab of Panduragan Biyayand from La Jolla Institute of Immunology in California. And uh, it's titled Intertumoral Follicular Regulatory T cells Curtail Anti PD1 Treatment Efficacy. And I think it's a really nice um, view on, on, on T Rex in, in tumors. I think that, especially in the last years, it's been very clear. And for all those that were focusing on CD8 cells, I think people are slowly uh, really. Um, coming to grip of how important it is to look at uh, T uh, regulatory T cells. Uh, they are very prevalent in many cancer types. They're clearly doing something in there. And in this paper, they're focusing on one particular uh, type of regulatory T cell that I think it might be still a little bit, I think it's still developing the, the identity of the cell subset. I think it's not completely um, mainstream yet. But it's basically uh, cells that are uh, FOXP3 uh, uh, positive cells or T-Rex that are expressing a certain molecules, certain markers that are very typical of follicular uh, helper cells as well. CXCR5, they are expressing or BCL6, uh, and that kind of uh, they overlap them with, with follicular helper cells. And so there's different definitions that make a regulatory, follicular regulatory T cells. So on the one hand, people are using only extracellular markers, uh, and then they define them as CXCR5 um, positive, GITR negative, uh, sorry, GITR positive cells or GITR high. And on the other hand, so also people are, are using the FOXP3 uh, transcription factor, but they're also looking at co expression of BCL6. And these are two ways that people are usually defining this T-Rex subset. And I think uh, probably I hope that this definition gets a little bit more refined as we understand more about the cells. So basically um, what is uh, important with the, the, starting, the starting point of this paper is the fact that you see this, this population in tumor, so in cells, T cells from tumor, they start their, their first figure by looking into pre-existing uh, data sets, and they find, uh, looking at the expression of these markers, they find substantial proportions of the T-Rex in these tumors uh, that are expressing 
BCL6 or CXCR5 together with FOXP3. And what they also observe is that they are expressing, this, this, this population are expressing the highest levels of CTLA4 and PD-1 among all of the tumor infiltrating T cells. And this, of course, when you're thinking about the, the fact that these are the targets for the most popular or the current checkpoint uh, inhibition uh, treatments, I think that's very relevant. And moreover, when they look at the, uh, ident we're looking into the, the, the position of the, the location of this follicular helper, follicular regulatory T cells, they see that they're, unlike regular T-Rex, the ones, the ones that don't express BCL6 or CCXCR5, they see that they're predominantly located in, in tertiary lymphocyte structures where no regular follicular helper cells are and B cells and these structures that also we're starting to understand and are also found in many tumor, uh, in many tumor environments. And uh, they look also into their transcriptomic, uh, they do some bulk RNA sequencing and they look at the transcriptomic features and they also identify specific features of this population that I, will, I think will help into better defining the characteristics of follicular regulatory T cells. And uh, they, they, they show that there's differences between kind of standard T-Rex and uh, these uh, follicular regulatory T cells. And moreover, they show that they are very prolif proliferative in tumor tissue, also uh, probably more than regular T-Rex. Uh, what is very interesting is that when they look into their, um, they, they see an, an increased um, clonality and a more, they seem to recognize more self-antigen very strongly. And they, so they come with a kind of a model in which follicular health, follicular, follicular regulatory T cells are derived from T-Rex that migrate into the tumor. They start recognizing self-antigen presented by the tumor and that activates them and uh, generates their, their differentiation into TFRs, so uh, follicular regulatory T cells. Um, and I think what is the most important part of this, so they do a lot of char characterization and it's a very, very nice paper to, to look at. And I think what I want to kind of uh, focus on is their, what they look into the effects of anti-PD-1 monotherapy. And they, their results suggest that actually this, this therapy can increase the functionality of these TFRs uh, because as they express so much, they're actually also highly responsive to the blockade of PD-1 signaling, which might be related to the negative effect of, of having T-Rex in the tumor uh, when it comes to responding to uh, PD-1 therapy. And also, and this I think is not complete, sometimes it's a little bit debated, but they see that CTLA monotherapy resulting in an in a increased depletion of, of mostly the TFRs compared with regulatory, uh, regular regulatory T cells because they're the ones that express CTLA-4 the most. And so they conclude that uh, it, they favor a treatment, that a sequential treatment with CTLA-4 followed by PD-1 uh, therapy um, that in their mouse models, uh, leads to a significantly higher reduction in the tumor volume compared to monotherapies separated. And they also look into human data, and they also suggest that the sequential treatment, those patients that have sequential treatment with DLA4 and followed by PD-1, are also associated with a better long-term survival, 
and they they uh, conclude that this is might be related to a first a depletion of this uh, TFR population, and then the activation of fol regular follicular helper cells and other T cells and CD8 T cells in the tumor without the presence of this uh, inhibitory um, this inhibitory population, which they also show that is really highly uh, inhibitory of CD8 function in, in general. So I think um, it's a really nice paper when it comes to understanding this population. Uh, and I think the, there's a lot of cool information and it really addresses one of these questions of, but it's just quite crucial how to uh, administer this checkpoint inhibition uh, therapies, which it's not completely clear uh, what is what is the best way. A lot of clinical trials are looking into the combinatory uh, possibilities, and I think this gives some educated guesses about mechanisms of of um, effectivity of these treatments. So is this another example of a T cells, a T cells, not a T cells, a different type of T cell? I mean, complexity is all around you, Jason. You have to embrace it. Now, I mean, I think it's sometimes there's a lot of papers that really look into, well, this T cell is expressing this one thing under this very specific circumstances. I think the important thing is to uh, find, correlate this 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 uh, characteristics with a functionality. And I think in the case of follicular regulatory uh, cells, the fact that they they preferentially uh, co-localize in that in that uh, tertiary lymphoid structure might be quite relevant because then they're right in the middle, they're smack in the middle of the action where where CD8 cells are and CD4 cells are being activated and are uh, and we also seen a TLS structure also related to um, B cells are also related to a better prognosis and better response to checkpoint inhibition. So the fact that these guys are right there and, and, and interfering with, with their function, which we don't completely understand what it is, but for me, it has relevance, uh, and I wish to see more, more research done on this topic. Absolutely, I agree. And it reminds me of the paper we talked about like a week or two ago, the, the, one of the last times we were doing this, where the priming of immune cells was spatially dependent and independent yeah. on the lymph node there. So all talking to each other. All right. Well, until next time and the next uh, T-cell subtype, uh, we will get on with the show. Looking for in-depth information on cell separation? Download the Cell Separation eBook from Stem Cell Technologies now, a practical guide on everything you need to know about cell isolation techniques, including a collection of protocols. Visit stemcell.com slash cell hyphen separation to explore the guide and download the free eBook. Hi, everyone. Today, we are joined by Dr. Robin Holt who is a veterinary biologist at the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. Uh, she's based in Canberra in Australia. And her research uh, focuses on virus evolution, epidemiology, and host pathogens interactions in more, mostly rabbit populations and the use of certain viruses for the control of rabbit populations in Australia. She's joining us from the other side of the world. It's 6 a.m. over there. Thank you so much, Robin, for, for talking to us today. Thanks so much for the opportunity to join you. Thank you for being here. So to jump right in, you have a, a very interesting job with a unique angle looking at <laughs> rabbit populations. Um, I know we, at least, at least in the States, we have a breed like rabbits as a euphemism. And so could you kind of lay out like what's up with rabbits in Australia? 
And, and I couch that in the phrase of when, when, at least in America, when we think of Australia, we think of a continent-sized island with a bunch of animals that try to kill you. Um, because there's a lot of really interesting poisonous species and other stuff that just seem to all live in Australia and like foot wide spiders or two foot wide spiders and all types of interesting things that make me a little scared. Uh, but I hadn't thought about rabbits. So what's up with bunnies in Australia? Sure. Um, so Australia is an island continent um, and it was colonised by white European settlers and they brought with them a lot of invasive species, um, including rabbits for hunting purposes. And so rabbits were um, initially released. I think it was seven or eight rabbits and they spread across almost the entire continent within a period of 70 years. So it's the fastest colonisation um, by any vertebrate um, mammal in the world. Um, and because there were very few predators, uh, they decimated um, native plants and animals um, by competing for food, shelter, um, and by eating the plants. And so even today, we have over 300 native plant and animal species directly threatened by rabbits and their impacts. Um, they cost Australian agriculture over $200 million each year uh, by competing with uh, domestic livestock. And they also have um, significant cultural impacts. So uh, they can um, impact on these cultural heritage sites where we have uh, Indigenous remains and things like that. So they are a significant environmental and agricultural pest. Um, and we brought them here. And I've believe that we strongly have a responsibility to control them. So, so I wanted to, to get in on the predator side of things. Uh, being yeah. an American, I hunt some. Um, I will admit to that. Uh, we have like foxes, which I don't do. I mostly go after deer, but we have some predators left on our continent uh, that mostly foxes that go after rabbits all the time. And do you guys lack kind of that mid-sized animal predator that would normally uh, view rabbit as a tasty snack? Yes, so um, historically we had the Tasmanian tiger, um, which was sort of the wolf equivalent, I guess. Someone's going to probably write in and get cranky about that, but um, that would have predated on these sort of small mammal species and that was hunted to extinction. Um, the Tasmanian devil only exists on the Tasmanian, um, Tasmanian island, so not on the mainland. Um, and so Really, we have the dingo, which is a type of wild dog, but that's um, limited populations. And so, again, rabbits are predominantly controlled, well, are predominantly predated on now by other introduced species like foxes and cats. So they manage to support the fox and cat populations here, which is not good. Um, and then we do get things like eagles that take rabbits as well. But uh, unfortunately, not enough to, as you said, they breed like rabbits. Um, and so, you know, predation alone is not enough to stop them. So we use viruses. Well, yep. <laughs> Sorry. I was about to say, well, there's a, there's a mammal, there's a virus, right? So you have a lot of research on rabbit caliciviruses and uh, particularly viruses known as RHDV1 and RHDV2. Uh, and these viruses are also coming from somewhere else also, and they're infecting this, this rabbit. Why don't you tell us a little bit about how did this virus come into your radar and what what is what is the 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 interaction between the rabbits 
end this this pathogen? So um, rabbit calici viruses, you know, we know that pathogens co-evolve with a host and rabbit calici viruses have existed with rabbits for a long time. But in the 1980s in China, they started to see mass mortality events in domestic rabbitries. Um, and eventually that was found to be associated with this calici virus, RHDV1. So the emergence of that virus is still unclear. Did it evolve from a non-pathogenic um, ancestor or was it a species jump? Um, but ultimately, these viruses are Khaleesi viruses. They're incredibly environmentally stable um, and they're shed in huge quantities from infected individuals. And so um, that very quickly spread across the world, uh, wherever there were rabbit populations, um, with significant impacts in Europe, where rabbits are a keystone species that support the European nat native predators. And so um, that was RHDB1. So that was identified with the Australians having these problems with rabbits. Um, this virus was identified as a potential biocontrol tool. So it's highly virulent. It kills extremely quickly. So within sort of 36 to 72 hours from infection to end-stage distributive shock and death um, through multi-organ failure. Um, and it is species specific. So RHDV1 is only found to infect um, rabbits. And so that underwent a series of testing to confirm that species specificity um, and an assessment as a potential biocontrol tool and was ultimately released in the mid 90s in Australia. RHDV2 then was first identified in France in 2010. Um, and so it was found to be a cause, again, there were mass mortalities in rabbits that were vaccinated against RHDV1. Um, and also it had a different epidemiology. So it was um, causing deaths in young rabbits. And interestingly, young rabbits are innately resistant to disease caused by RHDV1. So they can still become infected, but the virus replicates to much lower levels in young rabbits and they don't develop lethal disease and that age-dependent resistance is gradually lost um, over time and that's independent of maternal antibody status. So this change in epidemiology and this ability to overcome vaccinal immunity led to, the, you know, again, through sequencing, we discovered, they discovered this new RHDB2. Um, and again, because of the fitness advantages of RHDB2 over the existing RHDB1, um, it pretty much swept through Europe um, and has now made its way to, uh, yeah, throughout Europe, to the UK, to North America, Canada, Mexico, um, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, China. So again, it's um, a pandemic rabbit virus and has um, pretty much replaced RHDB1 uh, across the board now. So I guess the question I have then, you have these viruses that seem to kill rabbits pretty well. You have a rabbit problem. It sounds like you've already introduced at least the first virus into the population in Australia to try to control it. You obviously have a lot of ongoing research and work going on. So the follow-up question is, where is that work at? So you've got these viruses that you can give to rabbits to control the population. So where's the crux for people who aren't rabbit virologists of, of the story here? Where's, where's that next step? Like, I need to do the research. I'm writing the grants, the papers. Where's, the, where's that at? So with obviously no pathogen is going to completely eliminate a host. The game, goal of uh, biocontrol is not 
eradication. Um, and so we know that we need a pipeline approach to sustainably um, minimise or sustainably manage rabbit populations into the future. So rabbit, uh, so biocontrol viruses are just one approach. It needs to be integrated with other methods like um, poisoning and habitat reduction and things like that. Um, but biocontrol, viral biocontrol, it's, it, it spreads naturally. And so it's really the only thing that's suitable at a landscape scale at the moment, unless new technologies like genetic technologies are developed in the future. So biocontrol is um, a critical tool in the toolbox. However, we know it's it has a limited lifespan. Like we know that there's going to, if you release a virus, um, population immunity is going to build up against that virus um, and potentially genetic resistance in host populations as well. And so we need to be looking forward 10, 15 years into the future, what's, what's the next step? Um, and so that so as we said originally RHDV1 was released in the mid 1990s in 2017 a new strain so a new variant an antigenic variant of RHDV1 was released as a second biocontrol tool to to try to keep the impacts going um, and so now we're looking as to, you know, what could the future be and so obviously with the emergence of RHDV2 that was um, intriguing. Um, it also, it's not as species specific, so it also infects hares, um, so lepus and silver largus species, as well as the rabbits. Um, and so a lot of testing is required before RHDV2 could even be considered suitable. So um, our what we're looking at at the moment is we're continuing surveillance to look for new variants, both in Australia and overseas, that could be suitable for release. We're looking at ways to better utilise the viruses that are already that we already have. So, you know, if we can develop um, improved tests to find out what the dominant population immunity is to so that we can release the appropriate virus at the right time. Um, so, again, I liken it to antibiotics. You know, you don't just throw antibiotics out there in the population the whole time. Um, you use the appropriate antibiotic at the right time, at the right place, once you know what the population is susceptible to, um, to try to control those populations. And so I think of it as the same thing. Um, so yeah, surveillance for new potential candidates, um, better using the existing tools we have and looking at RHDV2 as to whether that may be suitable for release in the future to complement the existing tools that we have. That seems like very important decisions that need to be made because once you you, you take a step, right, and this, you're, not taking, you're not taking it back, right? Uh, I was yeah. hoping, I hope you don't mind me just taking one step back because I, what I forgot to mention is that where well, you are a, bit, uh, a veterinarian and you did a, a PhD in molecular biology at the University of Queensland. So and working on a different type of, of animal virus. And I just want to, wanted to ask you a little bit more about what is it to work and study animal pathogens and the, the importance of understanding, because I think Usually immunologists, we are very common human-centered or even mouse-centered, maybe. And we focus a lot on the, 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 the details of the human immune response. And I know there are so many fascinating, uh, also uh, host pathogen-host interactions throughout the animal kingdom. And I was hoping you can maybe tell us a little bit about your experience 
being in this field and then that w- which took you into your current position working by harnessing this understanding into for example population control uh, yeah so i uh, did my undergrad well yeah, undergraduate degree as a veterinarian. So in Australia, it's an undergrad degree um, and went into clinical practice and fell in love with infectious diseases. They're really cool, right? Um, and really important. So significant impact both on uh, domestic, you know, pets as well as um, livestock and food production. And so the whole, and zoonotic as well, so on humans. So the whole One Health approach, you know, animals impact our everyday lives and it really important for global food production um, and as a reservoir for infectious diseases that potentially could threaten humans. And and so, uh, yeah, I want to understand um, the, the, the viruses that exist in animal populations and how we can improve the health and welfare of our animal populations to, ag- against infectious diseases. Um, and so, yeah, that took me to a PhD in virology, molecular virology, looking at recombinant vaccines for the poultry industry. Um, so, again, trying to make these multivalent um, vectored vaccines and then um, through to this really applied rabbit biocontrol type work um, where again improving agricultural productivity and protecting our native species by mitigating the impacts of of invasive pests um, rabbits with viruses and so you know I think viruses are um, amazing in the way that you know these these tiny organisms um, are able to outwit an entire you know eukaryotic immune system even after you know millions of years of coevolution um, and so understanding that and harnessing harnessing that um, and utilizing our understanding to again develop vaccines and to use viruses or components of viruses as tools to improve yeah human and animal health and welfare so i don't want to wade too much into politics but i ask because like in the united states deer hunting is looked down upon even by some people because how dare you shoot a deer and yet if you don't they would destroy literally everything around them because we got rid of all their predators the wolves basically and so I was wondering, do you, do you have this issue as well with looking at viruses as biocontrol for rabbits? I imagine like there's concerns of, oh, you release something here. How does that work in the rest of the world? Um, you know, so like you, you want to release a virus in Australia. But, you know, as we've mentioned, like some of the viruses you're seeing spread over the world. So is there like consortiums to kind of negotiate that and make sure everyone's comfortable? Like, I mean, it seems like it's very, very complex. And so I was wondering if you could talk to it just at a high level of how you navigate those types of things and how how this has been done. Because like, frankly, this is the first I've encountered of learning about a virus control schema for an animal population. Yeah, thanks, Jason. You're right. It's It is quite Brought. There are a lot of considerations to take into account. So um, there's both the um, domestic rabbit pet owning population. Uh, so there are, as you pointed out, people who are dead set against any form of lethal biocontrol. And um, certainly that's a valid viewpoint um, and they are concerned about their pets. Um, and so we need to make sure that appropriate vaccines are available um, for to protect pet rabbits, what because we were trying to impact wild rabbits, not pet rabbits. 
Um, and that I think, you know, that concern about lethal biocontrol or, or lethal control in general um, it will only increase in the future. And, you know, we would love to have non-lethal control options available. Um, but unfortunately, at the current time, uh, really we're limited to the tools we have. So unless we can develop um, genetic control tools that are suitable and approved for release, um, you know, if, Fertility control methods, so like virally vectored immunocontraception has been looked at in the past and was just not feasible at a landscape scale. Um, and so at the moment, we're left with biocontrol. And as I said, it's part of an integrated control program, but we really do need to be conscious that, um, conscientious that, you know, it's people do disagree with it. Um, and from the political side as well, um, I guess we're not developing new viruses or anything like that like again I'm going to turn around and say I don't think that's possible nature can do it so much better than than we can um, and so we're using existing natural strains so RHDV1 came from Europe the K5 virus that was released in 2017 um, was a Korean variant uh, and RHDV2 is again first detected in Europe in 2010 and so I think you know, these viruses are already out there spreading globally. Um, and so us releasing them, yes, it will increase the amount of virus in the environment. Um, but, you know, the potential for them to spread, I think, was already there. I wanted to ask you one more thing regarding your position at the CSIRO. Yep. Um, I noticed that in your website, for example, you... Uh, you, there's there's a way of people for sending you samples, which makes me think about what is the role of your research group and your institution with the public, and how do you, does this, do you think of your 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 role in in Australian conservation society, so to say? Um, so we have quite a broad. Um, research portfolio, I guess you would say. So we work um, very closely with state governments, particularly South Australia and, and New South Wales on the rabbit portfolio um, and with industry. So we're, our funding comes through Meat and Livestock Australia and the Centre for Invasive Species Solutions. And um, so part of our research portfolio is to provide a, a national testing service to look at which Khaleesi viruses are active when and where in the environment. So as I said, we had these two strains that were deliberately released, RHDV1 and K5, and then we had these two exotic incursions, RHDV2 um, and another RHDVA variant. Um, and so monitoring the different um, incidences of those four, four different viruses um, so people can submit samples to us from dead rabbits. We tell them whether it was Khaleesi virus um, that was responsible for the death of that rabbit and which variant it was. And we can then start to map out where the viruses are active at, over, over the year. Um, and so through that, I think we have the opportunity to engage with the public a lot, which I've really appreciated and I hope they've appreciated it too. But um, we really, I think, start to get a, a finger on the pulse about what's happening, where these outbreaks are and the impact it's having on domestic rabbits and on farmers as well. So obviously, you know, we have 
people raise concerns from the domestic rabbit side, but we really hear from the farmers saying, oh, the numbers were, you know, we had heaps of rabbits and then the virus came through and just, you know, now we're not seeing any wild rabbits at all. And so I think it's really good for us to have that direct connection um, with the applications that we're trying to, to see. So with, with the end users of, of our research, I suppose. Um, and really interestingly, I mean, through that testing service, I mean, we're able to then full, do full genome sequencing on these viruses and look at the evolution over time, how they're evolving in the Australian landscape, um, and then start to potentially infer um, or hypothesize about selection pressures on the viruses. Um, and again, through that that testing service and through that sequencing, we've started to identify these recombinant variants. So what we're finding is that these viruses, you know, originally we only had RHDB1 in Australia, and now that we have multiple different types of viruses, they're switching out their, the two halves of the genome. So the non-structural proteins and the structural coding sequences are effectively, it's like a, a segmented virus, but the two bits are joined, but they switch at this position and to produce these recombinants. And so we found two new recombinants um, within the five years that RHDV2 has been present. And so uh, it's fascinating thinking about what are the, you know, the fitness advantages conferred by these different non-structural genes um, and, you know, the selection pressures that are, that are working with the virus to, for the virus to switch out and, and recombine this way. This is interesting, really interesting. So I know you you also have waded into intestinal organoids, which is a personal love of mine. Uh, in part, these viruses infect the gut. And so my understanding is you tried to make and made rabbit organoids as a, as a system to use. Have you Had you worked in stem cells before? Is this Was this your first foray into it? What do you think? I, I have to ask as someone who's spent a large amount of time on mouse and human organoid work in my life, now, now, now human, but initially mouse. Uh, how was that with rabbits? Yeah, so um, I've done a, a bit of primary cell culture work, but not stem cell um, work in the past. And I guess, so... Khaleesi virus, rabbit Khaleesi viruses can broadly be divided into enterotropic viruses that target the gut and hepatotropic viruses that target the liver. And the, the pathogenic ones are these hepatotropic ones. Um, but, you know, rabbit Khaleesi viruses, like many other Khaleesi viruses, don't grow in cell culture, which is really hampered a lot of the work that we can do. Um, so all of our work needs to be done in, in vivo, in rabbits which in one way is great because you're working, it's not a model system, you're working with the actual host pathogen system. And so I think that's really important, um, but it makes it laborious. There's a lot of individual variation. It's hard to do st statistically significant numbers. Um, and so, you know, nobody in their right mind would work on a non-cultivatable virus, um, apart from the fact that we need it for biocontrol purposes. So, um, when human Khaleesi virus was shown in 2016 by the Estes lab from Baylor College of Medicine to grow in human intestinal organoids, we thought, well, can we use, can we develop rabbit intestinal organoids and can we grow the enterotropic rabbit viruses in um, rabbit intestinal organoids? And we were hoping that that would be a smaller step from the human gut to, you know, human gut, human 
gut virus to rabbit gut, rabbit gut virus system, and then adapt that to rabbit liver, rabbit liver virus system. So we thought that intermediate step would be um, sort of rather than jumping straight from human gut to rabbit liver. Um, so yeah, we set about generating rabbit intestinal organoids and um, that worked quite well. So we developed the organoids, um, we characterized them, they look like rabbit intestine um, and we attempted to grow those rabbit gut Khaleesi viruses in that system and sadly have not seen any replication yet. Um, but again, from the human Khaleesi virus space, we know that there are a lot of um, organoid factors that go that, you know, contributing to replication. So we know that some strains are bile acid dependent. We have tried um, bile in our rabbit gut system, but we also know that there are still some strains of human norovirus that can't be cultivated in those human intestinal enteroids. And so potentially we're still looking at a strain, uh, you know, a virus variant organoid mismatch. Um, and so there's a number of things we can try, but ultimately our, our end game would be rabbit liver organoids um, and cultivating the, the hepatotropic viruses in those rabbit liver organoids. So um, you know, it was assumed that the intestinal system would be easier, um, but, you know, now we're shifting towards making rabbit liver organoids and they're looking good. And so then we'll, we'll try to in, infect those. Um, so, yeah, certainly the organoid space has been amazing. Um, it's a lot of, uh, you know, it's very exciting. And if we can develop a culture system, I think, you know, the ability to start to really critically test some of these hypotheses, hypotheses that we're developing from what we're seeing in the field um, will be, yeah, so, you know, it will really be able to advance our understanding of the fundamental biology of these viruses. Yeah, so no, that's it's interesting because I actually, even before we had ended up booking this interview, since I have like my Google Scholar set up to give me automatic searches for anything intestinal organoid, I'd seen your paper yep. just pop up on, oh, rabbits. I'm like, huh. Well, this this is interesting. In another week, another interesting model organism system. But I had no idea the um, kind of the linkages behind it. I also wonder if like co-culture will eventually be in your road, like you know, a nice little trans well where you got the right, you got the gut on the top part and some hepatocytes on the bottom part. And I know people are already doing that for PSC, which is primary sclerosis and colangitis yeah. and other systems in mice. And so I know that technology generally exists out there and liver shouldn't be too hard to grow in a dish. Generally speaking, it likes to grow. Uh, even in people, it grows. So yeah. <laughs> I think there's lots of ways that the rabbit intestinal organoids could be um, optimal, optimized and the rabbit liver ones as well. So, you know, it works quite well using the standard mouse culture media and conditions. But I think what we've seen is that um, they do start to spontaneously differentiate at, at times. Um, they like all organoids, they're quite touchy. Um, but yeah, I think what we really, I don't think we have the um, perfect stem cell niche for the rabbit organoids. Like I think most of the time they're fine, but they're sitting on that knife edge. And so any little thing will sort of knock it over. And so I think there's the, you know, opportunity to start to express some of like rabbit EGF and other sort of growth factors and actually expressing rabbit specific um, factors i think we can probably optimize the system a little bit um it's it's good enough but um we could make it better um and i think going forward that's something 
we'll look at. And the other, you know, there's another group in France as well that have done rabbit colon, uh, yeah, colonic organoids or sequel organoids. Um, and I think because, you know, rabbits are a major food source in certain parts of the world or an important food source in certain parts of the world. And so um, being able to study the, um, you know, intestinal metabolism or intestinal physiology for rabbits is really important for maximizing feed conversion efficiency and, and improved production of, of meat protein. And so I think there's a, there is a strong interest, you know, for us, we want to grow viruses in these systems, but I think there's a, you know, rabbit organoids, particularly intestinal organoids are important um, from a production standpoint as well, more broadly. You know, super interesting. And I, I also, uh, empathize with you on the differentiate thing because mouse mouse ilium also just decides to differentiate on its own sometimes like yeah it, it does it which is nice you don't have to then differentiate it with other steps later but it just does it oh that's interesting yeah, yeah not always it, it always does it over time and it just but not like humans where you have to really shift the the media so yeah it's interesting to see though because you think it'd all be the same at some point but nope biology is complicated yeah, isn't it? One, yeah, one answer and a hundred more questions. Yep. Biology is complicated. No joke. <laughs> it, it is really interesting how, how you use all this. Like, I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the importance of this research for management and how uh, on the conservation of, in particular, Australia is famous for, for the ma major issues around conservation of native species and how to manage all uh, the, the, the the influx of, of you know, species that were introduced by by colonizers and such and I just wanted to ask you a little bit about your career and how do you feel about this this kind of work and what what uh, for example you where I'm an academic and I work mostly on an academic setting I do work at a hospital so it's a little bit more translational in a way so this is how I look at translation in my research is that uh, patient's treatment. But in your case, your way of translating your research is completely different. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit about that and maybe people that are considering, young researchers that are considering moving to something more government or this kind of services that governments provide and require people with, with right skills. And what is your experience in, in this role? I guess, you know, for me, the invite, like I, I'm really connect. I feel that I've really connected to nature. Um, I feel really strongly that you know that we have a responsibility to protect this this planet. And for me, that's, that's Australia, the place I live in. And you know, the planet's under so many threats from you know uh, human induced clearing, from climate change, um, and you know, from native our native species are under threat from these introduced species and they have all of these um, pressures on them. And so I, I do feel a strong responsibility to try to um, restore the balance in whatever way I can. Um, and, you know, part of that, well, one way I can do that is by managing rabbits, managing invasive rabbits and, um, combining that with viruses is super exciting for me because as I said you know I find um, infectious diseases fascinating um, so yeah I think that's not to say that I wouldn't 
be um, happy in a clinical role as well. You know, I did enjoy veterinary clinical practice and, you know, I, I really enjoy sort of the pathophysiology of diseases and things like that. Um, but I think, you know, it, and it certainly depends on what, where your path takes you, you know, like life is a complex journey. Um where your path takes you and, and what you feel strongly about, you know, what your values are and being able to align the work that you do to those values, I think is so important. And I've been um, really lucky to be able to do that, combining, you know, this this need to protect the planet with um, my interest in, in viruses. Field work must be quite fun for you, though. You get, do you go outside and just like catch rabbits or take samples and just be, in, you're in the sun a lot, I guess, during field uh, work? Sadly, rabbits are um, crepuscular or they come out at sort of dawn and dusk and at night. And so most of the field work's at night. Um, but yeah, we do get to do field work as well. And, and you know, again, I like being outdoors. I like being in nature. And so, you know, it is good fun. We, we get to interact with like the, the parks rangers or, or landholders and things like that and see things that the general public don't get to see. Um, yeah, so it, it, it is fun. Uh, I do really enjoy field work and, and sampling that way. Um, so, yeah, we do laboratory-based experiments, so, uh, you know, wet lab and then animal experiments in laboratory settings and then field work as well. So it's a very good mixture. So, so I have two questions to follow up here. The first one is mm -hmm. having done field work in the evening in Australia and my previous comment about how the animals of Australia generally terrify me. <laughs> Have you ever had an encounter with an animal in the evening in Australia that was uh, somewhat nerve-wracking in any way? Like, you know, an evening. I know kangaroos kind of get in people's face. I know that you're you're out there. I don't know if you've had any interesting experiences with the wildlife while hunting for rabbits. So that's the first question. A poisonous platypus. <laughs> um, I have seen platypus on, on field work, but uh, I didn't feel particularly threatened I wasn't getting in the water and it wasn't coming out after me um I think the most dangerous thing is you know driving to and from the field sites because they're relatively remote and um you do get as you said kangaroos and and wombats as well walking across the road and so you know at sort of two or three in the morning when you're tired and you just want to go home and having to watch out for these sort of and I don't know if you know wombats are like um they're like giant bricks, very large, <laughs> very large cement blocks. And if you hit one, um, it's, well, very unpleasant for the wombat, obviously, um, but it will do some serious damage to the car. And so I think that's probably the most terrifying is trying to uh, navigate the roads in the early hours of the morning. All right. All right. Well, and then the next, the next question is, uh, we always like to ask people this at the end here. So if you were not a scientist, I'm going to add on, and not a clinical veterinarian, because that's too easy, <laughs> what would you be? Um, so lots of things. So I've uh, recently applied to European Space Agency to be part of their astronaut project program. Um, so if anybody out there is listening, pick me. Um, so, that's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Good luck. 
<laughs> Thank you. Um, I don't know if you, Kate Rubens is a virologist who's a NASA and I mean, she's just such an inspiration. But yeah, astronaut, um, I do a lot of bushwalking. I, I'd love to, you know, work for one of those outdoor adventure companies or um, leading multi-day bushwalks. Um, I could be a stay-at-home dog mom or a dog trainer. That would be great. Um, and, you know, I've certainly done some time in both uh, diagnostic virology labs and in uh, secondments to government in policy and both of those have been enjoyable as well so I think you know that's the beauty of science is that you know you can well and even if I wasn't a scientist you know there's as long as my values are curiosity, um, purpose and competence. And so I think, you know, as long as I'm learning and exploring and, you know, deliver, improving the planet in whatever way I can, um, so many possibilities. That's such a high, high note to end this interview. <laughs> All right, I have to log this. Does anyone ever else say astronaut? I was not anticipating <laughs> no. that. I think that's a new one. And that's, I, I heard about, that's, that's, Great! I, I'm 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 so happy to hear someone that applied to that program. I saw I saw the open uh, the open application. I thought, hmm, that sounds interesting. But yeah, no, I did not go as far as actually applying. So, I'm looking forward to the new uh, to the new astronaut uh, class of 2025. I don't know when they're supposed to be ready. Nice. Yeah, it's certainly exciting. And again, it sort of, you know, prompted me to do other things. You know, someone said, well, why don't you get your recreational pilot's license? And I thought, yeah, why don't I? All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Hall, for being here today. It was an absolute pleasure. Yes. Thank you so much for joining us. Great. Thanks so much. It's been a lot of fun. That brings us to the end of our show. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.demonologypodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and a link to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach us on Twitter at, at @immunopodcast or via email at info@immunologypodcast.com at with feedback or to suggest guests. Don't forget to share if you have an awesome spatially located uh, RNA-seq paper that you want to have highlighted and see you next time.